Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Hi, I'm Hyun Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. As an extension of the Childhood Art Speaker Series, the Childhood Art Podcast utilizes the forma, format of a follow-up dialogue to center the practices of leading scholar practitioners, with special attention given to the untold and perhaps understated interests and experiences that shape their work. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Mona Socker. Dr. Socker is Senior Lecturer in Early Childhood at Middlesex University in London. Her research is an exploration of early childhood pedagogies with a focus on pedagogical leadership, creativity in the arts and digital engagement. Her writing is framed by a commitment to moving beyond normative developmental paradigms for understanding childhood experiences. She is author of Creativity in Making an Early Childhood, Challenging Practitioner Perspectives in Digital Technologies and Early Childhood Art, both published by Bloomsbury. And she is co-editor of the anthology Post-Developmental Approaches to Childhood Art. Dr. Socker, welcome to Childhood Art. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So we wanted to start with a question related to the presentation that you recently gave as part of the Childhood Art Speaker Series. Um, I found your, your early discussion of post-developmentalism to be uh, especially good. I think it's something that I'm going to continue to refer um, undergraduate and graduate students to in the future. I think it was a really succinct um, articulation of post-developmentalism and the work that that approach does in relation to childhood more generally, but childhood art in, in particular. Um, for those listening, I highly recommend that you take the time to review the recording of Dr. Socker's presentation, which can be found on our website uh, and YouTube channel. Uh, specifically though, I found myself wondering about your own experiences as an educator and research and in particular, was there a moment or what was that moment in your, in your early career, for example, where that developmental lens, that way of being orientated to the child and to their work, begin to crack or the limitations begin to show themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't so much moments where that began to crack as it began to feel not really enough. So... Um, I remember doing my PhD and, and the PhD was halfway between psychology and education. So I had these two supervisors who were coming from very different perspectives and backgrounds. And one was straight psychology. You know, everything needed to be an experiment as close to laboratory conditions as possible. And the other one was really interested in what actually happens in the classroom, what do children actually do when they're going about their everyday lives? And so they would often have disagreements in front of me, which is always confusing when you're a student. Um, and it's challenging because they're constantly challenging you to do stuff differently to what you've done. And so I'd gone out and I'd done all of the data collection that was very much driven through that psychological lens. So I'd gone and I'd planned my resources and my research instruments and I'd sat with children as they drew in very kind of constrained ways by me where, you know, after 10 minutes I said, right, time's up, let's move on to the next thing. And I had a kind of protocol in place. 
But the other supervisor, my other supervisor, uh, Dr. Mary Wild, now Professor Mary Wild, um, was constantly saying to me, are you not just interested to see how this happens in reality? Do you want to maybe just go into the classroom and sit with the children with the computer in this case and just see how they draw on it? Um, and eventually I relented. I, I kind of, it was a tug to, to leave psychology, not because it was giving me so much, it wasn't, but just because once you've committed to a lens, it's quite hard to break that lens and then recommit again. Um, and so I had this moment kind of after doing what I thought was going to be the bulk of the data collection of being challenged to go back and just be with the children for a week in the context of their class and just see what happens. And it was revolutionary. It was the best week of my life. Like I enjoyed it so much of just being with the children in their environment and letting them take the lead. But honestly, the richness of the data was just incredible. Like I, I couldn't believe the things that they were coming up with on their own that could never have happened in my weirdly constrained experimental paradigm. So I'm not, you know, by no means am I saying that all psychology is rubbish and bad and meaningless, but at the same time, it was a huge challenge, but also liberation during the doctoral studies to just go, what happens if I just sit with the children and take this view that whatever they're doing in that moment is maybe enough and is maybe interesting in itself and there doesn't need to be too much more going on than what they're actually just choosing to do and it turned out that it wasn't just enough it was kind of more than enough it was like this 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 huge pool of treasure and riches um, so I think at that moment I kind of was constantly then moving away from developmental psychology and towards something that was richer and ultimately just what are children doing now and why is it interesting now yeah I just as a as a follow-up to that I, I wonder if like maybe you could talk a little bit more about you know what is it about being there with children in their art being in the reality of that of that event or that engagement as your one of your supervisors kind of stated that has the force to enable something else, something more to use your term. What is it about that way of being with children that really produces that possibility? I mean, I feel like this is a kind of trick question because it's them, surely. <laughs> you know, it just, it's the stuff that they're doing. It's, it's, it's not even that it goes on to produce something more. It just is the moreness. So in this research, when I let myself just be with the children for a week, they on the computer, you know, I'd been kind of mapping, oh, how do they use the cursor and the mouse in terms of the screen and these kind of details, very technical details. When they got hold of the computer and they were using it in their free flow playtime, they developed all of these narratives together that was spilling out all over the place. So they had this way of flooding 
the screen with color and they talked about it as jelly floods. I'm doing a jelly flood and they all picked up on it. And even I found like in my research, I would find, oh, this child's speaking about jelly floods too, but I've never recorded or seen an interaction between them and the other child that's speaking about the jelly flood. So they must be talking about jelly floods somewhere else, you know, somewhere where I'm not doing the research. So the kind of, it was like an enormous realization of the level of fun, innovation, imagination. It shouldn't have come as a surprise to me, but it really did. And I didn't feel like then that there was anything to produce. It was like, how can I just be with the jelly flood? <laughs> can I just, can anybody just let me talk about the jelly flood now? Because I think it's amazing that they've come up with this way of seeing what they're doing and also this way of sharing it with each other where it's become like a discourse in their play that's even spilling out to the playground or to other areas of the classroom. So it just felt really special in itself. Yeah, no, I, uh, I think there's a point within there too that I think is really important, which is, you know, oftentimes when, when in, in classes that I'm teaching, when students are working with young people, there's this sort of tendency to, to talk about the work as if it's somehow really new, as if the things that children are doing, like they're, like it's a novel kind of practice, right? Which it is in one sense, but at the same time, it's, it's also something that children have constantly been doing. What's new is perhaps the extent to which we as adults are, are finally giving ourselves permission to orientate our thinking to the, or recognitions to that kind of work. And it, and it leads me back to something else you said about why is it so, you know, like the difficulty of breaking from a lens that you've committed to, right? And, you know, I, I, this is something I've always been really interested in uh, personally, but just also working with, um, you know, pre-service early art educators and art educators more generally, you know, what is it that's so difficult about breaking from a lens, you know, that, you know, is it the credibility and the appeal, the power of knowing something, of having this kind of knowledge about something and this, and this sort of comfort uh, and credibility that accompanies it. What are, what, what are your thoughts on that? That sort of- I think it's, it's such a good question. I mean, I see with my students a lot of the time, it's that word just, isn't it? What, what, are, they, what are they doing? They're just scribbling. It's just scribble. And they'll even tell me it's just scribble but this is the story that went with it, you know? And you're like, this is, this is more than just, I'm not sure why we're saying just about anything here. And we can kind of debate the terms that we use, but even if we want to use the term scribble, which I'm kind of happy with, let's just not say just scribble. <laughs> let's try and avoid that. But I think so many people come into education with an understanding, and I think it is a misunderstanding to some extent, that education is a process which has to be done to people, including the very youngest children. So if it's a process that needs to be done to people, then you have to kind of build up your capacity to do it to them. <laughs> and so therefore it can never be easy. It cannot involve just sitting with, being with, you know, the early childhood educators that are on my course are so often worried about if I'm not doing anything, 
and I get seen as not doing something, then, then it can't be right. I can't be doing the right thing if I'm just sitting with the children and I'm playing with some Play-Doh while they play with the Play-Doh. That, that cannot possibly be right. Um, and I think it's about permission as much as anything. It's, it's giving yourself permission to go, maybe this is enough. And in fact, if I let it just be enough, I might see that it's extremely rich, that it's more than enough. Um, and that these are the best interactions that I'm having. You know, I wasn't actually, when I was sitting with the children one-on-one -on -one and constraining their drawing in a very particular way and constraining their use of the computer, that was horrible pedagogy. <laughs> you know, looking back on it, if I listen, you know, back to the audio recordings of the interaction, it's just horribly constrained. I'm not helping to draw anything out of them that they can use that is a resource that is meaningful to them. And yet I remove myself a little bit more from the equation and I leave the recorder next to a computer that they're all accessing it together. And suddenly they're all having this, not only an amazing time, but they're all like learning from each other and they've got these really fun interactions happening that are socially rich, that are emotionally rich, that are intellectually laden with all of these references to their own kind of cultural knowledge and identities. So it's just amazing what happens when you, and it's not taking yourself out of the equation, but when you allow yourself to kind of sit on your hands, <laughs> that's what I always have to do is just, I'm gonna sit on my hands as a reminder to myself to try to interfere and intervene and shape things less. And it's tricky, but I think that's, that's a big part of it is it comes from the good intention of people who want to be in education, whether it's as a researcher or as an educator or as both, but where you think, surely I'm only adding value if I say a lot and I do a lot mm -hmm. or say things and do things. I cannot possibly be adding value just by being there and trying to be in the moment and hear what the child is telling me and it's the realization no no <laughs> hearing and listening deeply is is the best thing you could possibly do in that moment I love that I love how you pointed out how how often we hear the term just scribbling they're just playing they're just you know messing around with things but um, it's just how we notice things as rich I think it's you know oftentimes the adult um, who determines what gets to be the rich data or whatnot right so I really um, love that uh, that reminds me actually um, your in your presentation how you talked about the idea of childhood art being um, on the brink right so um, first for our listeners could you provide a recap of what you meant by this and also what would it mean to think about research with children as a process that is on the brink mm, yeah the <laughs> Okay, yeah, you're challenging me to kind of remember what I meant by that, but I, I'll bring a new, I'll, I'll do what children do with their scribble, with, <laughs> with the scare quotes around it, and they might romance the scribble in different ways at different times. So I will romance my, my term on the brink. I think the thing that pops into my mind today is when we're talking about childhood art as this space that's very much on the brink, 
it feels like a space in which you, you're inviting in some mess. <laughs> you're inviting in the physical mess, but you're also inviting in some social messiness and some emotional messiness. There's kind of a, a lack of constraint that often characterizes other spaces of childhood educational experience, formal educational experience. But you're inviting in the mess, but how ready are you to deal with the mess? There's a kind of good intention that sits, I think, under a lot of early childhood art education, which is to say, the mess is really important and it is. So therefore, can we create a space where the mess is okay? And the thing is that the mess being okay isn't really just about the children being okay with the mess. It's whoever the art educator is being okay with the mess. And so I think you're starting to get into some really, some deep stuff for absolutely everybody that's involved where you're setting up a space that doesn't have the normal boundaries or constraints. Um, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't have the limitations in space and time that other activities do have. And then you're asking yourself as an adult educator to kind of sit there with the children in the mess. And that creates a situation, I think, for many people of feeling a bit on the brink, like, I'm okay with this, I'm okay with this, I'm okay with this. Oh, I'm not okay with this. <laughs> you know, something happens that almost spills out to a point that feels a level of uncontrollableness that for whatever reason is almost intolerable. And that lack of control, you might on a rational level not be seeking control. You know, you want to be on the brink. You, you want to be in that messy liminal space because you know that it, it feels really rich as a learning place. It's full of possibility, but at the same time, it can be really deeply uncomfortable and then sometimes even intolerable to be in that place. And, you know, I, I think physical mess is just a great metaphor here because we all, I think, have a limit. You know, you, you can lay out all the resources and things can get messy, but there can then be a moment which just tips you where you think, no, I was really okay with this mess, but now I'm not okay with the mess at all. And like things need to be cleaned up and they need to be put back into order. And so I'm just interested in, from a research perspective, what does it mean then to take yourself into that space of being on the brink? Um, and then from a kind of practical and practice and, and pedagogy point of view, what are you actually asking of yourself as a pedagogue in that moment and and how are you going to do it how are you actually going to pull it off one of the things that i i find myself thinking about a little bit here mona is given that given the work that you do around leadership i wonder what how this becomes part of that work that you're doing with teachers that idea of of you know, I think giving yourself permission and also having kind of the courage to to stay at the brink of things uh, uh, pedagogically and, and creatively in the classroom. How how are some of these ideas at play in some of that leadership work that you're doing? 
Oh, that's such a great question. And it's something I don't think enough about. So I really appreciate the chance to think about it. I think leadership for me is all about culture. It's, it is absolutely about creating a culture in which other people can do the work that they do. And if you're an educator, the most important thing for determining whether you're going to be prepared to go into that on the brink space, um, if you're going to feel okay once you're there, if there are going to be support mechanisms for you when you find that you're not okay in that place, ultimately whether or not you're going to be courageous will depend on a culture of courage in the organization. And that's why I'm so interested in the leadership is how do you actually create a, a, a pedagogical environment in which you're saying, be brave or be with the children. That's the most important thing in the moment. So, you know, how do you even drive a post-developmental pedagogy? Well, it kind of starts with a leader who's committed to creating the space and time for educators to connect with children and not feel hounded to do something else or to do something that they imagine might be more or more important. So I think it's the, the key link is culture. If you can create the culture of, of pedagogical courage, then you end up with pedagogues who are prepared to go to the on the brink place, even when it ends up not working and they have to run away for a little bit <laughs> and then try again another day. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. And it reminds me in some ways about um, the way you were talking about care in your talk. So for, for those listening who, who, who have not had a chance to visit, uh, revisit the presentation, you were talking about the, how, how the shadow invites us to think about care. And specifically, you made a point to talk about, you know, to kind of talk about the politics of care, specifically for, for women in early childhood. And I wonder if you could talk, I mean, I think this idea of, of there's an interesting relationship between um, care uh, as something that is also a kind of political practice, but then this a relationship to what you're talking about in terms of pedagogical courage, right? And so I wonder if you could maybe just talk a little bit more about, about that carriage uh, or that idea of having the courage to maybe engage in a form of care that works against maybe normative understandings of how care exists in early childhood. Yeah, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking there's a wonderful parallel between the just scribble and the and justness of care. <laughs> that you know, it's just scribble and it's just care. Um, you know, within early childhood education, care is this really dodgy word. So even, you know, with, with people working with naught to two-year-olds, there is this kind of pressure because of the, the lack of recognition and the value placed on care to kind of rebrand lots of what is care as education. And I mean, it's a false dichotomy that that's clear, you know, education and care are completely interwoven um, and, and can't really be extricated from one another. Um, but at the same time, there is a, a strange and it is a political kind of tension and war going on a battle between this kind of perspective where we say either what we do with young children is care and it really matters. It's really the thing 
actually. Um, and it's the thing that makes the difference. And we be courageous in that way and, and accept and recognize the fact that the reason care has been undervalued and underpaid for for so long is because it is delivered through a feminized, a highly feminized workforce. So we either fight that battle for care or we do this work of rebranding everything as education and saying that it needs to kind of be seen as education. So, you know, uh, uh, so many moments with very young children are clearly both, right? They are educational, the child is learning, or they're at least pedagogical, you know, um, but they involve huge elements of care. Um, and that care, as I was saying in the presentation, comes with costs. And there is huge stigma, I think, around kind of recognizing that in so many aspects of, of our life, whether it's at home, whether it's in early childhood settings, where mostly women are doing huge amounts of care over the course of a day, the emotional labor is ginormous, the physical labor is humongous, and at the end they still just have to be happy with a really, um, you know, a poor take-home salary and, and really horrible working conditions. And so I think that you, ca you can't, it's too much to ask people to be courageous in early childhood art education if we're not starting with a basic understanding and recognition of care within the context of early childhood art education and and in the wider context of of early childhood education and we're recognizing and, and valuing that that has to be a starting point you can't just come in and say be brave do more sit with children be with children learn from children without actually recognizing how much it takes to care for children and how much value is required. But I know that, I'll, you know, I'll be preaching to the converted on, um, on that point, but it's just such an important kind of context and policy and political issue that surrounds us all. Thank you, Mona. Um, so our last question today um, is that as a thinker of childhood art, um, what issues and ideas currently drive your work? And what questions are these issues and ideas nudging you toward currently? Great question, Hayon. <laughs> Where am I going? <laughs> um, so I, I, yeah, I got really obsessed with thinking about the shadow in, in during the presentation um, as part of the series. And thinking about where that really does take us and whether it does take us anywhere that's kind of vital or new or interesting in terms of early childhood art education. And I definitely think there's, there's room, but also work to be done in thinking how some of the concepts within psychoanalysis actually help us to be as researchers in that space of on the brink. You know, so I think that on the brinkness definitely is there. At the moment, I'm, I'm practically working with some video footage where I'm trying to look at very much the, the spaces that are outside of the typical spatial frame that we focus our gaze on 
and outside of the timestamps that we tend to look at within observation. So the kind of, you know, when you're setting up the camera, what's happening, what's actually going on there that might tell you something really important about the situation. Or when you forget and you leave the camera running and you have a conversation in the background with somebody else or the children go off to do something else, how does that actually feed into the early childhood art space? Um, because it's almost a bit like what I was talking about at the very beginning with the psychology lens of, of when do you disentangle it or deconstruct it and, and kind of recommit to something else. And I still feel like that's a force. You've never, you've never finally committed to just this is the right lens for me. This is the right way of looking at this. You can never, it's never a formula, I think is what I'm trying to say. And so what I'm interested in at the moment is how do you as a researcher practically challenge yourself to engage with the discomfort that sits with this on the brink space of early childhood art? How do you do that in a way that is tolerable? Um, and I don't think that that's easy actually, because I think when you're observing early childhood art and you're part of the mix as a researcher, the, the, the pull towards seeing your own behaviors and seeing the interactions that you're involved with in a way that you rationally feel connected to, that's a huge pull. And actually there's work to do to try and disentangle that to say, if I force myself to look at what's uncomfortable here, what do I then learn about art? And what do I learn about childhood art in particular? Yeah, I, the, the thing that you're talking about is I think one of the things about uh, being, being a researcher who is interested in, in children's art making and drawing in particular um, is the thing that I think drives me the most uh, is, the, is the, how complicated our own presence is in that work. Um, and, you know, for me, it's, it's not only interesting, but it's a real challenge. It's one that's constantly shifting. And it's, it's become increasingly clear to me that it's one of the things that in working with teachers uh, and grad students, for example, who are, are, are cultivating a kind of research practice as well, it's one of the things that's perhaps most important um, to kind of keep at the forefront of consideration is the work that we do right, that we are, are not often aware that we're doing, right, the, not just the actions we take, but the, the kinds of thinking that we tend to align with and the, the, the affect that it has, or the effect that it has on the kinds of relations we establish to children and their practices. Um, it's, a, it's a really fascinating and I think um, difficult thing to engage with. As a, as a small follow-up question, and I'm putting you on the spot with this a little bit, but in your experience, what has been, what's maybe one or two things that as a researcher, you always make a point to do to kind of take an account of yourself? 
That is a great question because I think as well as you were speaking, Chris, there's there's a there's a part of this parcel which is that you don't want to end up just doing lots of navel gazing. So there's a kind of you know there's a real desire to go. I need to take account of myself. I need to be aware of how I was part of these interactions and I can't shy away from the uncomfortable bits and only share the moments when I manage to behave in my ideal version of myself <laughs> as an art educator or as an art education researcher. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to get so caught up in your own presence that you forget that you're interested in children <laughs> and you forget that you're interested in childhood art like that's that that for me is the worst possible scenario is to end up so obsessed with my own discomfort in a situation that I've forgotten the child that's making the art <laughs> so I think there has to be ways of doing it which are which are quite practical so that they are like these time limited um and and not not an endless process of absorption in what you were doing. And so I think in terms of what do I do practically, one of the things practically that I have to force myself to do is to re-watch videos many times. And there is an element of that which is obviously there for the analysis. You know, you're gonna do that anyway, but part of the re-watching is me coming to terms with the aspects of the interaction that were nowhere even close to perfect. And for me, this is particularly important because I'm often doing research at the moment with my own children or with children in my extended family in a domestic environment. And so that relationship and those interactions exist on lots of dimensions. You know, I'm not approaching this as some kind of ideal art educator in a neutral space, not that not that such a thing ever exists, but you can get closer to it. But when you're in your own environment and you have these kind of really deep and intense relationships with the children and there are things that are happening which are kind of part of domestic patterns of life that go on well beyond the observation stop lots of things happen in the course of a video observation that are uncomfortable they're uncomfortable to watch so one of the only ways that i kind of can grapple with that is by forcing myself not to cut out those parts and to actually just force myself to watch and to re-watch and to re-watch and and to recognize when i'm cringing about what i'm watching uh, and when I feel uncomfortable about what I'm watching. And this might be something as brief as, so with the some of the material I was sharing in the presentation, there were just moments where I was watching the video and I was drawn to my facial expression and, and there was no question about it. Like I could tell from my facial expression that in that particular moment, I was bored. Well, that sits really uncomfortably with the commitment to a, pedag a pedagogy in which we're saying, you know, every moment with a child is rich and it's full and there's so much to think about and to absorb. Well, if you then capture yourself on camera looking a bit bored at times, what do you do with that? And I think, well, that's kind of a window, maybe even a wormhole, because actually, 
the boredom, don't we need to kind of think about that? So if we're constantly telling our students everything is amazing, when you do art with children, it's just amazing, amazing, amazing. And, and they'll constantly entertain you and you'll go away feeling like you've found meaning in life that you've never had before. Well, what are they meant to do then when they just feel a bit bored? So I think it's worth just staying, even if it's temporary, just staying with the moments of boredom and thinking, is there somewhere to go with this? Do I want to go with it anywhere? Or if not, just at least recognize that it's there. Absolutely. I think just really good advice and also excellent examples. And as always, Mona, it's, it's such a pleasure to spend time talking with you. And I think uh, you've managed in a very short amount of time to touch on some very different topics in really compelling and important ways. Um, and I really appreciate your time with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, Mona, thank you so much for your time and your continued generosity. Next time on Childhood Art, we sit down with Dr. Gail Bold of Penn State University. Until then, visit our webpage for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchildhoodart.com. Thank you, and thank you, Mona. Thank you, thank Mona. Thank you so much. Thank you.